Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello there, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm Chris Patterson, a co-host of the network, and my guest today is Lily Wong, who is an assistant professor of literature at the American University in Washington, D.C., and whose work has appeared in American Quarterly, Journal of Chinese Cinemas, Asian Cinema, and Asian American Literary Review. We'll discuss her smashing new book, Trans-Pacific Attachments, Sex Work, Media Networks, and Effective Histories of Chinese-ness which was published by Columbia University Press of this year. Trans-Pacific Attachments traces the genealogy of the Chinese sex worker as a figure who manifests throughout the 20th century in moments of anti-Asian racism as well as moments of sexism and nationalism within Chinese communities. Yet for Wang, the, the tensions and visibility of this figure also allow alternative and alternating forms of solidarity rooted in stepping back from ideologies of nation, race, and gender. The sex worker thus allows us to see Chineseness and other forms of collectivity as an effective product, an attachment that mobilizes our emotions and frames how we see others as well as ourselves. By charting representations of the Chinese sex worker through histories of Pacific Crossing, Cold War era ideologies, and contemporary states of neoliberalism, Wang's book shows the multiple ways that sex work and prostitution have unsettled forms of collectivity while providing new spaces for dwelling. So with that, let's meet the author. Lily, thanks so much for coming on the show. Would you like to begin by telling us more about yourself? Wonderful. Thank you, Chris, for having me on. Um, I like uh, what Chris said. I am an assistant professor at AU. Uh, My research focuses mainly on the politics of affect and emotion, gender and sexuality, comparative race, and media formations of trans-Pacific Chinese, Sinophone, and Asian American communities. Um, And Trans-Pacific Attachments is my first book, so... I'm excited to talk more about it. Great. Um, so let's get right to it. Then you begin the book uh, with an anecdote um, about the funeral for Li Jun, a sex worker in Taiwan who supported mm-hmm. her family all her life uh, and who helped to run the collective of sex workers and supporters at a famous working class brothel. Uh, why begin with this story to open a book about trans-Pacific attachments and affects? Right. Um, so Li Jun's story, uh, along with Guan Jie, who is another sex worker and activist that I write a little bit about um, in the book as well. Their stories played a very large role in shaping my understanding of collective intimacy from an early age. So collective intimacy in terms of uh, the family, the nation, and what constitutes the global. While this had a lot to do with my parents, they were academics and labor rights activists, um, advocates, sorry. And uh, when they returned to Taiwan, from the U.S. in the early 1990s, they organized alongside Li Jun and Guan Jie at Kaswas, the sex worker rights collective, also known as Zuzu Chun. So they engaged in a lot of protests and rallies that exposed me to the relationship between state power, the policing of social morality, and the limits of global mobility. And so in a way, I, the book project started off as an attempt to extend the labor rights work that I witnessed and really admired. And the 
but takes on a more cultural perspective. Um, it traces the symbolic and discursive work done by the sex work figure, both in real life and through cultural presentation. And since my parents were both psychologists, I feel like my, my choice of using affect as a mode of analysis in part, and of course there's other reasons which we can go into later with methodology, in part my use of affect was a way to connect their emphasis on the psychology of emotions with a more cultural studies focus on affect through the circulation of text, and then to further extend that scope into a larger trans-Pacific scale. Mm-hmm. And it, it's interesting you begin with this story, uh, for me, who has lived in like Hong Kong and mainland China, where, um, you know, for, especially for queer, like folk, Taiwan is kind of this, seen as this haven, right. you know, where like men and women are equal. Uh, it's totally tolerant of like, of um, any kind of queer communities. Um, and right. so it has this reputation, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like one thing I got uh, from that example immediately is that, you know, there's, I mean, first of all, this reputation is part of the um, the way the state has chosen to kind of represent itself. And then the other exactly. hand is that a lot of this, a lot of the good things that Taiwan has have come along because of all of this activism um, right. from sex workers who continue to be um, controversial, I, should, I guess, to say the least. <laughs> yeah. um, so I guess that kind of brings us to the figure of the sex worker. Yeah. Um, and just to make it clear to the audience that we are talking about the figures, the representations, the characters... Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still very important, right? What is, what is it about this figure of the sex worker? Um, why is she or he important when considering, uh, as you do, conceptions of nation, happiness, the family, stability, yeah. or modernity? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the figure of the sex worker, if you think of it, marks the intersection of margins of sexual, cultural, and class structures, oftentimes at the same time. Um, and the Chinese sex worker in particular has had a long history of operating as a trope of both Asian American sexuality and Asian modernity throughout the 20th and 21st century. Um, and so I kind of map that history itself. And even though the book starts with the Taiwan case, right, um, even in the case of the Taiwanese sex worker, um, we see the ghost of Chineseness kind of affecting the workers' bodies and profession. Of course, this is also furthered by stereotypical perceptions that mainland Chinese migrants pose sexual, moral, and political threats to the Taiwanese state, very similar to the yellow peril narrative that we see in the early 20th century in the U.S. Um, and see that shifting international conceptions of what China is or what Chineseness um, constitutes uh, affects these Taiwanese sex workers' livelihood, and they operate as particularly sticky forms of cultural imagination. Here, I'm using kind of ceremony idea. Um, and that kind of sticky form then operates in constituting what we understand as kinship, family, and nation. Um, and so the book tries to historicize those sticky moments. Um, and in a way then, the way I track these sticky moments is to kind of understand the sex worker figure as um, an affective labor in their own right. Mm-hmm. Let's let's talk about affect too. And I love the because you continue to use yeah. that word throughout the book, the stickiness um, of some right. of like Chinese ness and in the attachments right that people have. And I like that you talk about Chinese ness also um, less as a kind of national identity and more as an um, as a affective attachment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, can you talk a bit about you know your use of affect in that way? And and um, you know what what do you mean exactly by this? 
how how does the process become <laughs> sticky? Right. Right. Absolutely. So I read affect um, as a politics of emotional mobilization, the, the power to move and be moved by others. Right. And so that sticky moment oftentimes um, motivates a certain kind of collective engagement. Right. And so affect scholars have long had this long debate between what, what is affect, what is emotion, are they the same, are they different, do they come, what does one come before the other, um, and so I kind of detail this whole debate in the book quite a bit, but just to be clear how I use affect in the book, I use it um, as a way to build off of a very particular genealogy of post-colonial and women of color scholarship. Um, that sees affect and emotions as intricately tied processes that are not outside of social constructions of, say, race and sex and gender formations. That um, it is um, a, a sense of relationships between bodies that form collectives um, that mobilize in relationships to social norms, basically. And so here I'm building off of the work of Sarah Hamid, Nidhi Shih, Claire Hemings, just to name a few. Um, and so drawing from their work, I read affect as not private expressions, but as public practices that are potentially um, ways to reorder our individual relationships to what we consider the social. So in other words, I don't study what affect or emotions are. I, I look at what they do. Right? Um, I don't see affect as a, a particularly individuated or universal state. I see it as a historically specific cultural and social practice that has material consequences to them. And so to read the sex worker as um, an affective labor of Chineseness, um, I then approach the figure as a cultural medium that historically allows for various ideas of collectivity or collective engagements to take shape, but also have the potential to reshape itself constantly. Yeah, I like this. Um, I like this approach. And at first I was confused a bit because I think when you talk about um, affect, you talk about it as a way of like seeing emotion mobilized. Yeah. And just when I see those two words in the same definition, affect and emotion, yeah. I'm like, oh, I, then I have a hard time. But then um, right. I realized, you know, that that definition you give um, also forces us to include others or the other, right? Because you say that uh, you define affect as a mobilization of emotion, but of also of moving and being moved by others. Yeah. Um, so this kind of necessitates these, uh, these figures, like you said, the affective laborers, um, mm -hmm. like, like uh, the figures of the sex workers. Um, yeah, so I like that a lot. Uh, the last framework -y question I wanted to ask you um, mm -hmm. is about that word that appears in the subtitle of my book, but in the actual title mm -hmm. title of your book, uh, which is this <laughs> framework that we've been calling the Trans-Pacific. Uh, and as you write, right. uh, and I agree with this, that the Trans-Pacific pushes beyond diasporic frameworks, which can reinforce cultural mm -hmm. authenticity and logics of a homeland discourse. Uh, so can you explain your use of this framework and how it enables your project? Right. Um, so this kind of links to what we were, what we were just talking about with affect in a way to think about these methodologies as a way to fold in the so-called others, right? And, and so the trans-Pacific scope for me allows us to create critical pathways across more established frameworks of analysis, such as the nation or ethnicity or language, um, which can oftentimes be exclusionary for folks who are not housed comfortably in them. 
And, and so to be clear, I'm not arguing that we should move away from these more institutionalized modes of understanding identity. Um, I, I just see the potential in the trans-Pacific scope and stressing the linkages and movements produced when we say, when um, we see, let's say, national ethnic and linguistic particulars are put into contact. So, for instance, my book reads the constant recoding of Chinese-ness as a particularly charged contact zone um, within trans-Pacific ideological networks. So with a trans-Pacific or oceanic framework, um, our attention then moves away from the authenticity of national or cultural origins. Um, since currents are produced collectively and through the process of contact, it emphasizes relationality, basically. And, and then the book is able then to study not the truth value, per se, of Chineseness or originating in any particular location, such as the U.S., China, or Sinophone regions, but... Um, more so the affective impact or the cross-currents created by these intersecting conceptions of Chinese character. I, I was, I, your book did help me understand this, this framework that I also use because mm-hmm. um, it feels like almost every book that I've read that uses the trans-Pacific framework does use affect or does use at least like queer theory, uh, mm-hmm. you know, these kind of like studies that are similar to affect studies, sexuality, uh, and that by working in Trans-Pacific, you're kind of, I, I, I haven't formulated this into anything <laughs> yet, but that, yeah, that's not a coincidence, I should say. No. Uh, and so those two do seem to c- come together quite often. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So uh, since, since uh, the publication, of, since my debut book came out, I've also become so much more aware of the importance of structure <laughs> To <laughs> and yeah. I, I think this is something that, like, when you're d- doing your dissertation, you don't think that much about. Like, exactly. you're just like, oh, this is just everything is in historical order, chronological order, so the structure is obvious. Uh, but not true at all, right? When you're trying to publish a book, uh, you really <laughs> have to explain. And so I, I always, since that, since I went through that, it took me like five years to think of a structure for totally. my book. Yeah. Um, but can you tell us a bit about your book structure? Because you. I mean, it is chronological, so you begin with the early 20th mm-hmm. century, right. uh, which you call a period of Pacific crossing, to the Cold mm-hmm. War era, which you name Sinophonic, to mm-hmm. uh, a current era of global capitalism. Uh, and then each of these different eras offer different representations of Chinese sex workers, but each also builds upon the other. So can you explain mm-hmm. your thinking, how you came to the structure, um, and why you use it? Yeah, absolutely. So this is tied to then our discussion of methodology with the Trans-Pacific and affect together, right? So these are two structures that are um, that could easily signify everything and nothing at the same time <laughs> because they're so abstract, um, and they could easily become very signifiers of very individuated or private modes of expression, right? And so I uh, I wanted to make sure that the book had a very strong context to locate the kind of social and material conditions in which these structures are formed. Um, So it's not this wishy-washy, esoteric configuration. Um, And so um, I wanted to then understand how these material conditions came about. And so I chose three particular historical junctures um, in which I, I thought... Uh, was particularly interesting because those were moments where world divisions were being drastically reimagined, right? So 
the first moment being the two-world system, the imperialist versus anti-imperialist development in the early 20th century, second moment being three-world system, first, second, third world during the Cold War, and then the last moment being the one-world system, the globalization moment that is emphasized in the turn of the 20th century. Um, And so the book... um, is situated in these three moments, but I wanted to make sure that these three historical junctures operated less like distinct signposts than transitory points that they were able to interact and activate each other, very affective in that sense, right? Um, and so this is also why um, I wanted to make sure the book spans an extended amount of time and distance um, because that extension itself allows us to identify the affective dynamism, right? The relationality between these moments, the relationalities between these cultural productions, these producers, these receivers, um, these actual figures themselves, to kind of be able to locate the resonating dynamism between these intersecting affective forms across historical moments and geopolitical regions, which, again, the Trans-Pacific allows um, because the scope is wider without losing shape in and of itself. I think you you explained it beautifully. I love this word that each era activates the other, right? Each chapter activates the other. I actually started backwards when I was reading it. I read the last mm-hmm. chapter first because um, I'm kind of a fan of the one of the movies you talk about in the last chapter. Right. So I was I read that one first, and then I was like, I don't quite get you know like um, some of the the con- like the concept of dwelling, and then I went back and I read it from the first chapter on, and it suddenly became like, oh, I get it, like. You have to have all that. Like, if you just wrote about the contemporary era, it would not have been um, right. quite as uh, quite as effective. Um, mm-hmm. So let's start with that first era, then, so we can yeah. do a similar climb, I suppose. <laughs> I uh, so the Pacific Crossing, uh, you, you yeah. begin with in the you call it the, the Pacific Crossing as a concept. So you can explain that mm-hmm. if you want. Uh, but here you discuss the literature of Swiss and Far, who, uh, as well as the on-screen actors who played uh, prostitutes, uh, Chinese prostitutes in China and America. Uh, what did you see happening in the representations of sex workers uh, in this era? Right. Um, so this became a really interesting era because um, this was the era of high, both high moments of U.S. and Chinese nation building, um, and so there was a lot of play of very oppositional concepts of China versus the U.S. So anti-Chinese sentiments, the Page Act that excluded um, most female Chinese immigrants into the U.S. under the guise of anti-trafficking, um, and then also the Chinese Exclusion Acts as well. Um, and then you also, on the other side of the Pacific and China, you see then the rise of um, these reformists and national revolutions and the May 4th movement and the left-wing cinemas um, that was kind of in reaction to... Um, these kind of yellow peril-esque imperial discourses that frame China and Chineseness as backward and antithetical to modernity. Um, and so I was really drawn to this oppositional framework in this early moment and, and how helpful that framework was to articulate a very particular third space, basically, of uh, cultural construction. And what was interesting to me was the, the figure of the sex worker then becomes extremely pivotal, um, smack in the middle of this. So just to take um, the U.S. context, for instance, um, 
to be able to um, articulate a certain kind of benevolent uh, banning of Chinese sex workers or Chinese women as sex workers um, allowed us to then resolve the paradox between domestic race-based exclusion and kind of international encroachment into Asia um, with this idea of benevolent civilizational expansion. Um, and so the sex worker as a figure becomes extremely important um, in both U.S.-based national rhetoric, but also Chinese-based national rhetoric to push back against this kind of encroachment into Asia. Um, what was really interesting for me to look at cultural texts in particular was that you see modes of resistance built into even the cultural text itself. And so what I deem Pacific Crossing is that despite these policies and these very hard forms of power that are constructing this idea of Chinese backwardness, you see these kind of affective formations in cultural production that delineates this third space. Um, and this third space that depends precisely on that opposition, but then actually can transgress it. So, for instance, in a lot of uh, the, in the work of Susan Farr, for instance, uh, you see then the sex worker figure articulating a certain kind of resistance both towards kind of U.S.-based exclusion, uh, but also towards Confucian-based ideas of family um, at the same time. So these sex workers are able to carve out this third space precisely because of this opposition. Um, this idea of bridging between oppositions creates then that third space of the bridge, which I see kind of constantly recurring, and not only in Xu Xingfar's work, but also in the Chinatown poets, too, and their obsession with articulating a sex worker um, in Chinatown. Um, and the same thing that you see in national cinemas, too, the, the actresses that play these roles in these nationalistic um, left-wing cinemas during 1930s Shanghai, um, although they were supposed to embody national embarrassment um, and uh, galvanize nationalistic fervor uh, for the anti-imperial um, deed, um, they themselves, the way that they are mass-mediated, the way that they repackage their bodies, the way that they um, market their own emotions on and off screen um, produces something so much more. And that more is what I was interested in, that even in that oppositional structure, there is a certain kind of crossing. Um, that's what I mean by the Pacific crossing, a certain kind of third space of transgression that can come out of the highly oppositional moment of turn of the 20th century. Yeah, I think that my, I love what you say about Swiss and Far too, but I, I'm, I had a kind of aha moment um, when I was reading the second chapter, which is, mm -hmm. like, as you say, there's a kind of um, overflow or a kind of excess in the, yeah. the, the body language of the actresses, mm -hmm. right, who are portraying the, the sex workers. Yeah. Um, and that was a kind of an aha moment for me because it, again, gets back to that, like, crossing of, like, transpacific and affect and queer theory, that these are kind of excesses mm -hmm. uh, in a sense, yeah. you know, that they're not being, they're ways of trying to get out of being tied down by you know, overflowing the lid, I suppose. Exactly. Um, yeah, and so I, you know, I actually went back and rewatched scenes from um, Shanghai Express just to like, <laughs> like, does is her body language really look like that? And 
<laughs> I was reading it totally differently after that. Like, it, Aww, because the, the, I love that. Yeah, the, the dialogue is so, you know, like racist in ways, but then yeah. just watching Anime Wong and just the way her body responds to this dialogue, like you can just kind of see that excess, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that sense of overflow. So I really, I really appreciate that. Um, so let's talk. <laughs> yeah, that's, oh, go ahead. that's what affect can do. It's, that's what I, I feel like affect is so, so magical in a way that it kind of allows us different scopes. That's just to me, stickiness. I feel it's very liberating. Yeah, it's the stickiness that is very generative. So, uh, yeah, so let's talk about your second section, which deals with yeah. uh, the sex worker in the Cold War era, which, mm -hmm. um, and you argue that this be begins to carve a kind of Sinophone space. So the third space that you were talking about before, you start to name as more of a Sinophone space here. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. it's, it seems loyal to neither America or China or, you know, the ROC or PRC. Um, but like you, like we're saying, it has this kind of excess to it. And so you understand mm -hmm. how this first kind of starts to emerge in Hong Kong cinema, though it's mm -hmm. not really about Hong Kong nationalism at all or anything like that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And it comes out with the Shaw Brothers films uh, and then in Taiwan with uh, Wang Junhe's novel, which I once actually reviewed for a magazine when it came out in mm -hmm. English um, or was re-released in English. Uh, mm -hmm. Rose, Rose, I Love You, right? Yeah. Um, about a brothel that ends up serving military servicemen um, during the Vietnam War. And yeah, so I, <laughs> I was very curious about these chapters because um, when I read that book, I love the language in the book, yeah. even though it was translated into English. And, I was, and my, my Chinese <laughs> was not good enough and still is not good enough to read it in Chinese. But the, the language is just so weird yeah. um, in English, like Mother Humper. It's yeah. one of those words that continually came <laughs> up. Uh, but so let's talk about this section. What do these examples yeah. offer? How do they illuminate uh, the ideas uh, and racisms of the period? Right. Um, so... Um, what I loved about this era was that um, this was an era where, if you think about it in the Sinophonic frame, um, it lends itself um, a kind of reconstruction outside of the nation state um, in, the very, in very creative ways. Um, and, and I have a historical explanation for that in terms of kind of this era being the moment in which even the project of Chineseness itself was then kind of triangulated. Um, through the Cold War era because, you know, China then gets split into the PRC and ROC and it, it becomes this uh, huge project in which one claims then authenticity through language, through cultural production, through migration, right? And, and of course, that split itself is largely mediated through then larger geopolitics with the U.S. and um, the U.N. itself. So, um, because of this kind of triangulated historical moment, um, there's some very interesting uh, expressions that then tries to articulate itself in a way that rejects the nation state as the centralizing uh, motivator of identity and social formation. Right? So in, in the first part, we see the nationalism being very useful in creating this third space. Um, the second moment when we are completely reconsidering what Chineseness is and what constitutes that region. What is the geopolitics mapped onto it? What are the, the cultural signifiers? What is the language used to articulate Chineseness? Uh, then you suddenly see a huge expansion of space uh, of rethinking identity. Um, and so Shaw Brothers becomes this really interesting formation for me. I remember I started getting very obsessed with them during grad school because I, had, I, I grew up watching their martial arts films, but I had no idea they had such a huge 
archive of softcore porn. Um, and that was kind of one of their most highly marketed and um, well-grossed kind of genre. Um, and that's where they get to play a lot outside of the lines, so to say. Um, and another thing that really intrigued me with the Shaw Brothers was also the fact that they were second in production only to Hollywood um, during a brief moment, 60s and 70s. Um, and so to me, I thought that was very interesting because then they played a huge role in reconstituting uh, what um, Chineseness looks like across the globe. Um, for those that China, folks that are in exile, um, folks that see themselves as part of the diaspora, folks that um, are rethinking their own Chineseness um, in a, a completely different context, the Shaw Brothers then play a huge role in helping kind of constitute a more cohesive language for that. Um, and so looking at kind of a longer genealogy, so, so in Chapter 3, I traced in a gene genealogy of two particular films. One is Ainu, Intimate Confessions of a Chinese Courtesan, and then the remake of it 10 years later when the Shaw Brothers was in the decline. And that tracing itself, you could see it's, it's a very interesting language of reconstituting a very particular, what I call Sinophonic um, identity that then doesn't need to queer Chinese-ness anymore, that it itself can be formulated. So in the first um, film, you could see it's still trying to deconstruct kind of these social signifiers of Chinese-ness and Chinese norms. Um, the second remake itself, it really just leaves that all behind. So it moves from a deconstructive to a formulative kind of move and imagining itself on its own terms, which I, I, I deem extremely sympathetic. Um, that it can imagine a minor-to-minor -minor form of authenticity without falling back on more heteronormative or heterotypical ideas of cultural reproduction. Um, and uh, this kind of ties into the Wang Zhenghe novel, too. And I love teaching Rose Rose, I Love You in the classroom. The students are just completely confused, um, and they don't know if they should laugh or they <laughs> should feel offended. Um, and that's partially what I love about it, because it just kind of... Um, it creates such weird affect, too, that it, and the affect goes all directions, right? That, that you're both disgusted, but at the same time intrigued, and then there's comedic elements to it. And that kind of complication of affect, that kind of splintering it into multi-directions, um, a huge part is tied to the fact that its language is so layered, right? So even though it's translated into English, right, the, the translation, I think, was phenomenal because it really did translate how hard um, it is to then create a smooth narrative in a land that has so many interlaying um, languages. Um, and even with a Chinese speaker, right, a Mandarin, a native Mandarin speaker reading the, the original text, um, if you didn't know Japanese or if you didn't know certain uh, languages like Hakan, uh, you also would be experiencing very similar experiences as the English speaking reader as well, because there, it refuses full-on accessibility. And I think that itself is part of the meaning-making and what makes this book so interesting is that it, it kind of puts the reader in place um, and also makes the reader feel the kind of different hierarchies of language clashing and then produces this kind of um, multi-directionality of meaning-making and affective attachments at the same time. And, of course, the sex worker is smack in the middle of it. 
right? So the people that are kind of contesting uh, authoritarian language, the people that are contesting official Mandarin use of Chinese, these are all the sex workers just really coming in and clamoring. And uh, this is where I see the fourth chapter really leading into the last section is that I feel that um, the the novel not only articulates this decentering of nation state as um, this centralized idea of identity formation, it actually projects a certain kind of outwardness. It, it calls the reader to train yourself to have a better year, um, to listen to the clamor of voices um, that is inherently minor transnational, right? The, these voices are not in one location. They're not singular. Uh, they don't go in one direction. Oftentimes they're misspoken. Um, and so it needs a more creative idea of understanding minor to minor communication and minor to minor connection. And so I see that's kind of where the second part moves into third, which really looks at um, post-Cold War, how do we deal with this one wellness um, without then being completely taken over by a dominant narrative of, neo- of neoliberal cohesion or globalized marketization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's get to that um, that last section. Um, and one other thing I wanted to mention that I really appreciate about uh, th- these last couple chapters, though, is um, like you said, they train the ear in, yeah. into hearing these things, but they're they're also so based on parody, yeah. which is uh, it feels so rare in in the Western <laughs> world to have, especially when dealing with like sex work, yeah, uh, or like desire yeah. for the other. Yeah. Um, and like, so if, if you have any good readers out there, Rose, Rose, I love you. I still think is like incomparable as a novel. <laughs> <You> <laughs> I teach really it every like year. It. it is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, now I'm tempted to teach it, but <laughs> yeah, it is challenging, but, um, it is, it is, uh, quite rewarding. Um, okay. So let's get to the, your last section then where mm-hmm. you, you do talk about another, um, text that I've love, which is uh, Seeking Asian Female, right. uh, which I teach in class uh, every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, it's similar to the others in that it's also really funny, Yeah, but it's a documentary. And so it's not really, it's not clear if it's supposed to be originally made for that purpose. Um, right. It becomes funny because of the, uh, the antics, I suppose, <laughs> that are being recorded. Um, right. So you, you compare, so this is, Seeking Asian Female is, is about a, um, uh, a kind of mail order bride story, uh, but the the male the white male husband is just so open and has no filter. Um, so you just see everything laid out on the table of what he thinks of Asian women, um, and there's also a relief in that, right? In that he's not trying to hide, whereas everyone else feels like you're trying to hide um, exactly. all of these ways of thinking. Um, and so you compare this with the Taiwanese film, The Fourth Portrait, which I have not seen. So I'll trust you to maybe talk a bit more about that. Uh, but one thing I love about this section is that the, especially seeking Asian female are not, is not usually seen as a kind of sex worker film, right? Yeah. Um, so you have to expand that term a bit, but you also show how, you know, any relationship is, has these like exchanges in it. Uh, and so that there is something about kind of decentering like the prostitute proper from sex work, um, that allows us to kind of visualize, uh, how we've, come to rely so much on this specific figure, right? And villainize the specific figure. So I'll leave it to you to, to uh, make any entry point you want into this last yeah. section. There's so many. Yeah. 
Yeah, no. Um, yeah, this was uh, the, the section that I did, like you said, expand um, the scope a little bit from kind of sex work, talking about prostitution in particular, to then larger ideas of sex work, um, the work or the labor of mobilizing sex or desire or management of desires as itself a fr- form of labor. So this is where it kind of expands itself into larger ideas of affective labor. Um, and I see that kind of larger forms of affective labor becoming extremely important in the turn of the 20th century where people often call kind of a neoliberal moment or a globalizing moment, right? Um, where then like, we're kind of increasingly tied to information and more softer forms of labor. Um, and so this is why I kind of at first it started as an experiment to, to pair these two films because um, they don't seem like they, they have direct connections. But in a way, I wanted to connect them through this idea of a larger concept of affective labor, but also how the marriage institution itself is also oftentimes tied to a lot of these marketized exchanges. So mm. both of these uh, films' main heroines are mainland Chinese women, who exchanged their global mobility, the first woman in, in the fourth portrait going to Taiwan, um, and then the second woman going to the U.S., both of them exchanging their global mobility through then um, marketing themselves as um, blacks, right? So, so they were able to then move out of China to Taiwan and the U.S. Um, through then um, marrying themselves out. Um, and what was interesting to me was that... Um, instead of seeing them as solely kind of victims of uh, kind of uh, marketized pressures to then go to other places, um, these women had so much agency on their own terms. And and what I saw was um, a certain kind of recursive repackaging or recycling of the signifier of Chinese-ness that can be repackaged through their own bodies to articulate a certain kind of agency um, that actually refuses uh, both kind of uh, an articulation of national patriotism to the places that they go to, right? So both heroines do not actually completely subscribe to their host um, nations, Taiwan or the U.S. Um, they also do not subscribe to certain kind of expectations of their um, marriage labor, right, like, like reproduction or um, domestic work. Um, and so I was very interested in how that was mobilized through the film itself. And so this is why growing became really interesting. Uh, if we think about marketized exchanges, marketing a lot of kind of hyper-connectivity and upward mobility of capital, growing then becomes a different kind of motion. It's recursive, and every recursive movement itself that reconstitutes and reorients a possibility. And that's kind of the ethnic structure that I see these heroines, these female uh, women in these novels, um, sorry, in the films doing is that they kind of repackage in a recursive way their own uh, their own agency that defies both marketized exchanges but also nationalistic mm-hmm. patriotism at the same time. Yeah, one of my um, my favorite examples of dwelling um, is actually in your conclusion, 
mm-hmm. when you give examples of like online communities who are sympathetic to sex workers and are talking about um, you know pop the same pop music from the beginning yeah. um, and then they're kind of translating for each other and they're having this dialogue when they're really kind of supposed to hate each other <laughs> you know otherwise yeah. uh, but they're yeah. they're they're dwelling in this virtual space yeah. um, and that was another kind of moment for me where I was like okay I get dwelling in this sense because and I had to compare it in my mind to like settling Ooh. you know where like in Seeking Asian yes. Female the heroine refuses to kind of settle in the US yeah. you know like yeah. she she doesn't allow herself to pretend that the US is so great um, and any of that stuff she's kind of, she's very much thinking about both um, exactly and so I, when I, once I made that comparison I thought okay I get it and then the second thing that that made me get it, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> but, you know, in the first part of your, like you were talking about third space, um, yeah. but then you start to use the word sinophonic in the second yeah. section. Mm-hmm. And what I like about dwelling here is it does seem to name a kind of affectively like driven third space, but not one that you can name as such. You, you can't really name it, especially in the contemporary moment, right? We don't know what it's going to yield. Yes. Yeah, yes, so, and, and, yeah. So, yeah, can you talk a bit more about you know dwelling, um, how you use it, uh, how I, even it could be on a virtual sort of dwelling? Right. Um, I love um, kind of your, your reading just now about how it's very hard to name, right? That that um, in comparison then to the first and second part, dwelling it becomes this kind of more emergent form, and and that's what I actually really love about. Of looking at affect is that you get to kind of see or trace things on the cusp of materializing as well. Um, and I do think that um, with the dwelling moments, I'm basically trying for them to think through the contemporary. Um, and I, I do feel like it gets in the process of formulating. Um, and so this is kind of going to be where my second book um, starts off, right? So mm. so the first book kind of ends with this kind of initial formation um, this idea of recursive actualization that defies kind of marketized exchanges, um, but hasn't quite yet materialized, at least in the way that I'm thinking yet. Um, and so becomes this launching point, I think, of kind of what is to come. Um, but I do think it is really interesting to think about other possibilities um, to think through this kind of contemporary neoliberal moment that defies a dichotomy between resistance versus accommodation. There is this kind of third space that is a little bit more volatile, um, and I'm trying to think through that. And that's kind of where the the book and the first book ends, and where the second book will start off. That's fabulous. So I'll ask you a bit more about that second book in in a minute. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> let's let's finish this one first. I have one more question Absolutely. about this project, uh, yeah. which is. Um, how you see it making an impact in other uh, in other discourses, you know, even perhaps on the ground kind of impact. Um, you have so many ideas uh, going on, and, and this is also like historical. It's you know in, embedded in affect theory and Sinophone studies, um, China studies, Asian American studies. You know, how do you see this work? You know, you're kind of carving your own third space in a way. You know, how do you yeah. see this then affecting other fields? Yeah. Um, I think this is also kind of a, a result of coming through a comparative literature degree, right? So um, complex and inherently um, is 
training us to think at the intersections or trying to figure out synergies between fields. Um, and that has been very life-giving for me. Um, and where I think, and I, I guess I hope the book intervenes in um, our two general areas. One is in its trans-Pacific scope, um, and the other is in its affective methodology. And, and so the first trans-Pacific scope, I hope that um, like we talked about a little bit earlier, that it complicates, of course, the diasporic framework, right? That um, to think beyond centripetal ideas of cultural authenticity and homeland discourse, which um, is oftentimes exclusionary for folks that are not comfortably housed. Um, the book, The Trans-Pacific Scope, also serves as an interesting counterpoint to really rich scholarship on transatlantic studies. Um, I think it's an emerging field that um, is able to highlight the understudied yet vital role the Asia-Pacific has played in shaping what we consider to be the global. Um, and I think it's only going to be more and more important as you know, U.S. foreign policy pivots to <laughs> Asia and so on and so forth. Um, so I think the first intervention, I hope, is to kind of further articulate and expand um, the field that might be called trans-Pacific studies. It could be a field, it could be a methodology, it really depends on how folks want to approach it, right? I really don't want it to be a descriptor. I, I really hope that it is kind of an instigator as, as a sense of analytical scale. Um, and the other inver- intervention that I hope my work um, is working towards is um, affect. Um, and so I feel like an affective analysis challenges the privatization of identity politics, um, since affect itself produces relationality, right? That it, it needs to hinge on the friction between bodies. Um, something as individuated as individuated as folks' understandings of their own bodies and desires are under an affective lens deprivatized as historically situated notions. And so, for instance, a focus on affective labor, such as sex work, um, then contextualizes identity within larger social and material relations. Um, And so if we think about affective labor becoming increasingly significant in, let's say, a late capitalist economy, it seems crucial for us to develop ways to locate complex workings of affect, value, and power that we see through old and new styles of economic, technological, and cultural forms. Um, and so I really hope that Trans-Pacific Attachment um, offers such a study or, or starts a conversation in this direction. Fabulous. Sounds like a lot to take on. <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to ask now about your um, future projects, but I should probably shout out that we're going to be on a panel together um, yes. at the in November at the American Studies Association Conference in Atlanta, Georgia. I for, totally forgot to plug this. Um, <laughs> so we'll be there, and uh, Martin Joseph Ponce is, is chairing. We'll have Amy Bong also on the panel, and Gina Valesco also on the panel. So um, come out for that if you're at ASA. Uh, but on, so besides this panel, <laughs> what else do you have uh, going on? What, what, what's your uh, next project after this? So the next project really... Um, starts off where the first project ends off um, in terms of time period, but also analytical scope. Um, it looks, and it's tentatively titled Liaisons and Alliances, Trans-Pacific Crossings in the Neoliberal Order. Um, and the project furthers the book's um, attention to culture politics of affect and motion. It starts with the dwelling, right? Um, and to think through um, this particular contemporary moment, 
but to focus mainly on minor transnational connections, so transporter transporter links and collaborations across minority networks, so alliances that could potentially be created. So um, one of the first chapters, for instance, that I this was published in American Quarterly last week, uh, last year, um, was a reading of um, Yamashita's I Hotel um, and thinking through kind of 60s and 70s um, Asian American movement politics as it reimagines Chinese social movements like May 4th and the Cultural Revolution um, and revitalizing uh, a certain kind of, let's say, anti-capital mm-hmm. uh, politics. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested in that, not only in terms of just going back to the dwelling, like what is, what is generative and going back? What is generative and recycling? Um, what is generative and not fully using, um, not fully capitalizing. Um, and so I felt like I Hotel was just such a brilliant novel, and I really wanted to write about the intersection between kind of third world politics during the 60s and 70s, um, China's revolution, uh, Maoism, and the Asian American politics in the Bay. Wow. So what was the title, the going title, Liaisons? Liaisons and Alliances, Trans-Pacific Crossings and Neoliberal Order. Okay, fabulous. So if, if the listener is listening to this two, three, maybe five years, who knows from now, it might already be out. <laughs> can, it might be, it could be a completely different title. Or, yeah, a completely different. <laughs> and have yeah. completely different contents, too. Exactly. We know. Uh, okay, great. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the, on the show today. It's been my pleasure um, reading your book uh, and, and interviewing you. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this interview with Lily Wong on her new book, Trans-Pacific Attachments, Sex Work, Media Networks, and Effective Histories of Chineseness. If you have any questions, grievances, or suggestions for books for this podcast, you can contact us on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks for listening. Bye.